All right, so I don't really have any slides to share this morning. This morning is more or less a, a, a bit of a recap, a lot of it. Um, but we were going to be touching and talking about uh, practicing. What's it look like to practice the Lord's Day? Uh, we've, again, this is a, 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 we attacked, attacked. We, um, we took the, the theme of the Sabbath from a biblical theo theology theme. So we're walking from Genesis to Revelation and understanding what God designed in the Sabbath and what its purpose and um, how it still is um, very much a part of our lives today. And so we're going to go over briefly a little bit what we talked about, but then we're going to wrap it up by talking about how this is being practiced today in uh, the New Covenant. Um, so we understand it's strong tie to creation. We talked about it's tied to the law, the Mosaic law, um, and its eschatological significance, you know, that uh, the importance that it has into eternity and how Christ our Lord is the fulfillment of what the Sabbath truly means. It's a resting in the Lord. Well, this morning, like I said, we're going to wrap up this theme from a biblical theology perspective, cover how it's practiced or rather how it's observed in obedience to this fourth commandment in the Decalogue. And so let's just start at the beginning in this final analysis here. In the opening chapters of the Bible, we learned and know that how the Sabbath day, which is this from a weekly perspective, is that seventh day of the week observance um, in, in the beginning, in the Old Covenant. It's a reminder that uh, those who are made in the image of God, all human beings made in the image of God, are therefore created for the purpose of fellowship and to worship him. We are created for the purpose of fellowship with God and to worship him. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, where we see God making a covenant with Adam, uh, the purpose of that covenant was that Adam would enter into a permanent and divinely heightened communion with God. This command of to uh, cultivate, to keep the garden and to not take of the, the, from the tree of the good knowledge of good and evil, but to freely eat of all the trees of the garden and to, to multiply and uh, to fill the earth. It was to expand beyond the Garden of Eden. Eden. And in part of that was this Sabbath rest, that seventh day. Now we understand, um, we obviously don't have the time to go into details here. We've covered it before. If Adam had remained obedient in the garden, then he would have accomplished as representative man, as man's federal head, uh, bringing all his descendants, all of his descendants with him into that eschatological rest with God, that heavenly rest, that end time rest. But we know that didn't happen, did it? Uh, he sinned, Adam sinned, and we 
sinned in him. And so this heightened and permanent hope for a Sabbath rest, it was lost. And that did not take God by surprise. It did not take God by surprise. Um, it was that, that hope, that first hope that we read in, in Genesis 3.15. There would be one that would bruise that serpent on the head. That hope that would be given in Christ. It would be Christ himself, God in the flesh, who would be the last and better Adam to secure the hope of an eternal Sabbath rest of God's people. And so the, the storyline of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, prepares the world, really, not just the Jews. Now, it is obviously written and understood and only really read by the Jews at this point. But it is preparing the world for the Son of God to come and accomplish man's need for redemption. Um, we'll talk in, about a little bit that we'll see in, in Isaiah this morning. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments that sits on top of the law, includes the command to observe the Sabbath. And the Sabbath reminds Israel not only of God's work of creation, but his work of redemption. You know, if you were to look again, as we did, at the, uh, the way the commandment's given in Exodus 20, and how it's repeated again, but has a, a different ending in Deuteronomy chapter 5, um, we see how it is God's work of creation and his work of redemption. Then after the law, we have the prophets. We went through that, talked about that. How they, the prophets highlight the Sabbath violation, that that would be grounds for bringing God's covenant curses upon his people, his disobedient people. And yet the Sabbath remains, and the Sabbath expresses the glorious restoration in the Messiah that God has in store for his people. And that's where it's not just for the Jews, it's for both the Greeks and the Jews, the Gentiles and the Jews. God will accomplish his goal of drawing all kinds of human beings to himself, to worship him and to have fellowship. No more of that, that wall of hostility. And then we, as we continued through um, walking through the scripture, came upon Christ and his earthly ministry and how this ministry, which if you recall, we mentioned was up until his resurrection, it, his ministry took place under the law of Moses. Yeah, he, had to, he fulfilled the law. Uh, he shows the true meaning and the purpose of the Sabbath. Um, he teaches that the Sabbath points to the liberty and freedom from condemnation and power and the dominion, the curse of sin, and why he has come to rescue poor sinners. I think it was last week we talked about this. For example, his Sabbath, the miracles that he performed. You know, they pointed back to the rolling back of the curse. These miracles of healing, rolling back the curse and the restoration of human beings. Um, these things that his re redemptive work would accomplish. 
spiritually and eventually in our resurrected bodies ourselves. Now we see in his healing example of the man who was born blind. We see a true purpose of the Sabbath there. The worship of God in Christ. Again, all these things are pointing to him. You know, if you remember, he spit in the dirt and he made the mud. Yeah, and he took that mud and he rubbed it in his eyes. And he could see. You know, depicting Christ as Lord Creator. Who is due worship? You know, those controversies that he had. He had some pretty heated ones with the Jewish leadership, even about the Sabbath. Um, and that gave us a glimpse and a clear view into his authority that he exercised as Lord of the Sabbath. And so far from abrogating the Sabbath command, Christ rather affirms it. Then we see on Resurrection Day, the first day of the week, uh, and how that marked the dawn of the last days, that inbreaking of a new creation, as we read in, this, in the book that we've been going through, into human history, this, this marking point. And because of this, we talked about how the Sabbath did undergo a transformation. It, it changed its days, didn't it? It's no longer the seventh day, but to the first day of the week when the Lord was raised from the dead. And so yet the Sabbath, we, we know, continues to be a day of remembering God's finished work of creation and redemption. It still holds firm to both understandings. We're reminded of that because it always points us back to his sovereignty and creation. And yet we see that new creation again being unfolded in Christ being resurrected from the dead. As we ourselves are a new creation to walk in newness of life, right? Well, we're reminded of this in the church. It rests and it waits for that final Sabbath rest that has been secured for us by Christ's life and death and resurrection. And so, as it is today, you know, it's that the church, by the authority of the risen Christ, this day set apart for the worship of God in Christ. And so, for this reason, it takes on the name that it will bear until the end of the age, the Lord's Day. Remember, we talked about that, how um, the only place we'll find in Scripture where it refers to the Lord's Day, where John on the island referred to it in Revelation 1, verse 10. So this is our walk that we've gone through, and we, we have seen how this Sabbath theme runs throughout Genesis through Revelation. Um, and so there's some questions here that the author of the book that we went through uh, has proposed. I like tackling these things from a perspective of a question, especially when it's a question we could be asking ourselves. You know, what does the observance of the Sabbath look like for people who are under the new covenant? Um, we can answer that question by reflecting upon the Sabbath along 
three lines that our author has given for us to look at. One of the line of creation, the line of Christ's work in consummation. So it's important to remember when we take and understand the new covenant under the Sabbath, the new covenant Sabbath from a perspective of creation, that the Sabbath origin, it lies, it doesn't lie in the teaching of Christ and it doesn't lie in the Mosaic commandments. It lies in the creation itself. And so the Sabbath offers a critical weekly reminder to all human beings. So we're, every human being is commanded to keep it holy. Believers and unbelievers alike. Um, Gearhardus Voss, some of you may recognize that name. He was, um, you almost could argue he's a bit of the, the father of at least modern biblical theology, uh, theological study. He's um, theologian, served in Princeton University up until the early 30s, I think it was. Um, he said this, he wrote, he said, quote, there is to be, there is to be to the world, to the world process, a finale, a finale, just as there was an overture, right? And which we see in Genesis 1-1. And these two, he says, belong inseparably together, this finale and this overture. The Sabbath brings this principle of the eschatological structure of history to bear upon the mind of man after a symbolical and a, a typical fashion. So it, it symbolizes and it, it typifies. It teaches, he says, Voss, it teaches its lesson through the rhythmical succession of six days of labor and one ensuing day of rest each week each successive week. And man is reminded in this way that life is, is not an aimless existence. Again, we were created for a purpose in, in worshiping God, obeying him. This, we're not, our life is not an aimless existence. There, there's a goal that lies beyond. This dimension of the Sabbath is perhaps it's, it's most basic. God wants all people to remember that though human beings were made to work, to keep, to cultivate, to fill, multiply, he made them for more than, than work. He made them as his image bearers for that fellowship and communion with him. He didn't need it. We need him. But we are created for this purpose, and praise him for that. This purpose, this worship is the goal of human existence and human history, and the Sabbath it offers that weekly reminder of that goal. We need to be thinking of these things, thankful for them every day, every Sunday when we come and gather. Uh, the author that, of the book we went to, Guy Prentice, he said this, he said, quote, we exist, we exist in a world that often lives as though there was nothing beyond the five senses. 
and as though momentary pleasures and satisfactions are the goal of this life. And in such a world, the Lord's day is a needed interruption, a reality check. It's certainly that. It's more than that, but it's certainly that. But we need that. God knows we need that. As forgetful as we are. The Lord's Day provides a weekly reset to our priorities, our attitudes, uh, our goals, so that we return to our callings the other six days with a bit more clarity um, and perspective that, that we need to live in a way that pleases our God and honors him. We need that reset that renewing of the mind as well. It's accomplished through the ministry of his word. Part of how the Lord's Day resets our lives is by pointing us to the work of Christ on our behalf. It also does this. We're being reminded of our Lord and the work that he's accomplished for us. On the Lord's Day, we look back to what God has done in Christ to save poor sinners like me and you. And what really in a, a very um, overwhelmingly way, what characterizes the Sabbath or the Lord's Day observance in the New Testament is that the people of God are gathered to hear the word, to hear it read, to hear it preached, sung, Martin Luther, he said this, he said, Christ is the center and circumference of the scripture. To hear the word read and preached is to learn of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That, in large part in our lives, happens on the Lord's day. where we hear the preached word, which is a primary means of grace. And the fellowship of God's people at all times but especially on the Lord's Day, the fellowship of God's people should find ways to encourage one another and, and point one another toward the sufficiency of Christ. Boy, do we need to hear that message when we've been wronged, when um, we're hurting, when our friends are hurting. But the sufficiency of Christ and, and the beauty of him and being our savior from sin really to do any less than that when we gather together to do less than that would really begin to relegate our worship and just going through the religious motions and like what we again what we studied of the Jews during Jeremiah's day Malachi's day now we'd be robbed for it, we'd be robbed of the spiritual refreshment that God intends for his people. And so, you know, we wouldn't have that which we desperately need in living our lives out in faith. This is the means that God gives. To ignore those means is to, you know, forfeit those blessings. Now, from a perspective of consummation, final things, 
the Sabbath not only points us back in time to the beginning, um, the center of human history, it also points us ahead to the end of, end of hi history itself. You find this also as you're reading in the book of Hebrews, that we are reminded that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Because Christ was able to accomplish what Adam couldn't accomplish, the weekly Sabbath offers us regular reminders not only of God's work in creation, but of our, the heavenly home that awaits us. And that our earthly pilgrimage, as difficult as it is at times, will one day come to a welcome conclusion. The Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, also reminds us of this, that eternal Sabbath rest. Guy Prentice said this, he said, this future orientation to the Sabbath has been in place since the creation, but in Christ, that this orientation takes on two added dimensions for God's new covenant people. So let's look at some of those two added dimensions for God's new covenant people. First, and, and Gerhardus Voss observes this, he says, the work which issues into, into the rest, it can no longer be man's work, like we saw in the, entailed in the Mosaic law. You know, it was a covenant of works. But we are now in the new covenant. It, it's the work of Christ that we're leaning on, the finished work of Christ, just as the saints in the Old Testament looked toward that finished work of the Messiah. Now, the old covenant was still looking forward, Voss continues, he says, the old covenant was still looking forward to the performance of that messianic work. Now, naturally, the days of labor to it come first. You know, the day of rest is at the end of the week under the Mosaic covenant. But under the new covenant, we look back. We're looking back on that accomplished work of Christ. So he says, we therefore first celebrate the rest on that first day of the week. We first celebrate the rest in principle that was procured by Christ himself. And although the Sabbath also still remains a sign of looking forward to that final rest, that heavenly rest. weekly reminder we have in the Sabbath that we are entirely dependent upon Christ to bring us near to God. And so as we undertake the labors in those following six days that God has appointed to us, we remember that nothing that we will ever do in the work of our callings can supplement, much less replace, what Christ has done on our behalf. We need this reminder. The second added dimension um, is a view toward a future. Insofar as the weekly Sabbath points us again to that future Sabbath rest, which is secured by Christ. Now, as we remember that we are a pilgrim people, now, this isn't our home. We are a pilgrim people. We have not yet arrived at our heavenly home. 
We are not therefore what we shall be, and neither are where we will shall be one day. No, we are pilgrims now. I like the way this Richard Gaffin puts it. He explains it this way. He says, the weekly Sabbath is an important safeguard against the overreach of enthusiasm. Against the overreach of enthusiasm, this safeguard that we have in the weekly Sabbath, this enthusiasm that constantly threatens Christian faith. Uh, it protects the church against tendencies to blur or even lose sight of the differences between that eschatological already and not yet. Okay, the already and the not yet. So the Sabbath is a sure sign to the church that it's, it's still on the way. It's, we're still on that path. We're still being sanctified. It's a recurring minder, reminder to believers that while most assuredly we do belong to the new creation and that we are ourselves new creations in Christ. Daily we are being renewed inwardly. But still, we're in the body. We're still in this, as he puts it, this, this psycho-physical experience that we have. These, these experiences that lay short of the final rest that we have coming to us. We are a people that are in waiting. We are a bride waiting for its groom, as the analogy so aptly is put to us. Well, he goes on to talk about this enthusiasm, this enthusiasm or triumphalism, sometimes it's talked about. It can take on many forms. Um, one is a form that can harm the church is one of perfectionism. It fail, uh, that view which would fail to reckon with the power and deception of the sin that still indwells us. Um, that perfectionism that would make you a, a weak Christian doubt their salvation consistently. Another form that this triumphalism can take is a quest for, uh, as you put it, ecstatic or heightened spiritual experiences. You know, always having to be on the, the, the spiritual mountain high. Disregarding the, that there are very real valleys of death that we walk through. Disregarding those things as if you were experiencing those and hurting from those things, then there's something wrong with your faith. You know, the weekly Sabbath, as we come together and gather and learn and hear the preached word, we're reminded of this stark reality that we do hurt. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with this, that these, this pain that we feel, except the fact that the sin that's in the world that is ultimately a result of these things, but it has nothing to do with you being an unfaithful Christian in most cases. In most cases. Um, 
So there's this triumphalism. Um, another way it can show itself is the belief that good health and financial well-being are the norm for the financial uh, faithful Christian. <laughs> is that true? No, it's not. Good health and financial well-being. Uh, also, an expectation that the church that I am a part of should be completely free from sin and error. Now, yes, in one sense, we should be always struggling against sin. And if we're not struggling against it, then we're not fighting, right? But it's, it's also that view of perfectionism that's mixed into that. You know, people can be church hopping, while always finding the best church, if you will. Of course, there's nuances and different things that go on behind the scene, but that could be a way that it shows itself, this perfectionism, this triumphalism. Um, another way is that we see is that a prompting a view of the church ushering in a global state of being that shouldn't be expected this side of heaven. Not until the Lord returns. And so it's a reset. It's, it's being grounded in the word and reminded of these things as the word is fearfully taught and preached. All right, so observing the Sabbath today. What does Sabbath observance look like in the 21st century? Well, it's going to look the same thing as, um, you know, the, the 2,000 years before. Um, besides what small changes there could be in, in culture, in those small nuances, but how do we honor the Lord's day is the question. How do we do that in a world that's committed so much, especially in the 21st century, to living for itself on a 24-7 basis? Um, how does the New Covenant Sabbath observance look from different from Israel's observance of the Sabbath? Well, there are three principles that the book that we went through talks about, and I want to go over those here. First principle is one I think very few of us would, uh, our Christians, evangelical Christians today would have a problem with, is that the Levitical calendar of the Old Testament, which was full of those shadows and those, those types that were pointed forward to Christ, who is the substance. Um, you know, those have been answered those shadows and those types have been answered in its purpose in redemptive history. So the elaborate system of feasts and, and festivals, sacrifices prescribed by God in the law of Moses has come to its appointed end with the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Christ has transformed the worship of God's people to reflect his finished work. And what is truly a multinational character of the people of God. John chapter 4 talks about that stuff. A second principle that he calls out is that believers need to steer clear of some extremes. We always need to often steer clear of some extremes. Um, the ones that he's talking about in terms of observing the Sabbath are extremes of permissiveness uh, on the one hand and 
ones of Pharisaism, being like a Pharisee, on the other hand. Now, the Lord's Day is not a time to pursue our own pleasures, but what pleases God. And we see that. Like, for example, in Isaiah, he reminds us of that. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 58. And let's look at verses 13 and 14. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. All right. Isaiah writes, if you turn your back or turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall Take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's not a time, it's not a day to be pursuing our own pleasures. Those pleasures that um, um, are sought and attended to those six days of the week, the other six days. So the question is, what should this day look like for Christians? Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, as Matthew brings that title out, it points us to three kinds of works that are pleasing to God on this day. All right, first and foremost is the public worship of God, the gathering of the saints, that gathering that Paul tells us we should not neglect, and to do so would be sin. The gathering um, of the saints and, and, and hearing, again, the word preached and taught and sung and, and read and um, the fellowship of the saints that ha occurs on the Lord's Day. But first and foremost is the work of public worship of God. Second, a second kind of work that is pleasing to God on this day is works of necessity. Now, there are some chores we just can't get away from, okay? Uh, preparing food to an extent, right? Um, and there are jobs out there in the society that for the public welfare we rely on that continue, hospitals and the like. Um, and that kind of bleeds into the, the other work, works of mercy. If in God's providence we encounter these needs in our lives on a Sunday, we need to tend to those things. We need to tend to those things. If our example, our young kid is sick and needs to be watched, then we should stay, stay home and care for that child. So what the Bible doesn't give is a list of pre-approved, permitted, and, and forbidden works on the Sabbath for us to just check off. And rather, it tells us, God tells us that if we keep the main thing the main thing, then the rest of the day should, should fall into place. You know, if we prioritize public worship in our lives, in the fellowship with God's people, 
our hearts take um, sincere pleasure in communion with God, then we are in a good position to make God honoring and biblical decisions about the details of this day. Third principle um, that is recommended is that the Lord's Day offers tremendous benefit to God's people, the benefit to us. Again, Christ has told us the Sabbath was not made for man, or as rather was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, again, warning us against a pharisaical approach to things. Now, believers encourage one another in the pursuit of holiness on the Lord's Day, especially. Now, we are reminded of, of our, again, our very certain and sure future Sabbath rest that we have awaiting for us in, the, in heaven someday. And we're, we're given that needed perspective that we must have as we face trials, face persecution. We simply, we enjoy a day when God's people are able to tangibly, as we take the Lord's Supper, for example, tangibly express um, and, and understand this, what we have gained in Christ. We also get to express our concern for one another. As another part of that worship is taking up collection for the needs of the saints. That is an act of worship on the Lord's Day. God provides for all these things for us. But above all, all these things, the Sabbath, it brings us near to Christ. He delights in drawing near to his gathered people to bless him through his word and the power of the Spirit. That's what we experience each Sabbath, this, this spiritual refreshment or often this dry, prickly sponge that we can be. A, a well-spent Sabbath will leave us renewed, invigorated, and ready, more ready to be faithful in the days that lie ahead. So here's a few practical steps that we can consider. Just a few, really. Um, the first is, of course, to set apart a whole day to, for God's worship. Now, we should be members in a local church, not just regular attenders, not dating church, as we've heard it put before. Members in a local church where the word is faithfully taught. And we should commit ourselves to attending every day, even if we're out of town, traveling. We should do our best to try to gather with fellow believers. And let me tell you, it's just a blessing to be able to do that as well. Or this clear kinship that we have with our brothers and sisters worshiping together. It's not going to look just like your home church. It makes you kind of long for it in some ways, and that's a good thing too. Um, a second practical step is to find ways to enjoy Christian fellowship and extend hospitality on the Lord's Day. We have some great examples of that in this body before us. Um, finding ways to do that. Um, you know, the Petersons host um, often on Sundays. Uh, the small groups, we've done it, my wife and I did it on Sunday this past time, and we're gonna, we loved it. We're going to continue with that. It's just a great way to spend the Lord's Day. 
Um, the truth is God wants us to be refreshed, have spiritual refreshment on this day. And that's really a, the third practical step here is to seek spiritual refreshments on the, on the Lord's day. He, he wants us to be engaged on this day. And we, it's not like we just come here and things automatically, the, the table's set before us and coffee's made and all that stuff. We, we are engaged on this day, but the goal of engagement is that we would know more and more the refreshment that comes from fellowship with our maker, our redeemer. And, and a lot of these things, we're just serving one another. Um, the author brings up in this idea of the need to seek that spiritual refreshment on this Lord's day and every Lord's day. He, he brings up something that from the Psalms where Asaph um, he considered the prosperity of the wicked. And, and he confessed that his, his feet had almost stumbled. His steps had nearly slipped because of envy, looking about, seeing what the wicked were, were doing, how they were prospering. He did not truly understand them or himself. He confesses in that psalm, quote, until he went into the sanctuary of God. It wasn't until he went to the sanctuary of God where things were starting to be aligned again. It was in the gathered worship of God that he understood a couple things. First, the pleasures of the wicked, their illusions. They're illusions, and it's extremely transitory. Ruin is what lies in store for them. And secondly, the, that he, that Asaph was able to understand was the pleasures of the godly are, are real. They're certain. They're definite. They're sealed. Asaph said these things to God. In fact, let's turn in our Bibles. Let's do this. Psalm 73. We'll just read a, a few verses here. Psalm 73. Uh, verse 23 through the end of that psalm. And this is Asaph's response after he had... Um, really lamented before the Lord of what he was seeing around him. He said, nevertheless, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. For behold, those who are from far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. He needed to be reminded. Asaph needed to be reminded of God's sovereign purposes, his good purposes. God was near him, and that he would be so until the end. That passage said the nearness of God was his good. We need this reset more than we 
care to admit, I think. Now, our sinful thinking, which clouds our, our thoughts, of course, our sinful thinking and the ungodliness of the world itself around us, it can warp us, uh, our perception of things, the way things truly are. We need this weekly reset. So, as the author puts it here, wrapping this up, he said, let's, let's not only observe, but uh, enjoy the Sabbaths, these Lord's days that God gives us until he brings us into that future and final rest, that Christ, that Sabbath rest that Christ has won for us, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore.